Labor Day is upon us. It's sort of a harbinger of the ending of the summer season, and I know kids going back to school are thinking, yeah, that's not necessarily fun, or teachers returning to work. It could be like, yeah, uh, that the party's kind of over. And it's no exception when we talk about what we've been doing this summer as we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians. And hopefully as we've done that together, thanks Brian, as we've done that together, uh, you've, you've been able to kind of see some things on this little vacation that we've taken in the, in the, in the Mediterranean uh, community of Corinth. And as we've done that, we've used this car, this 1970 Hemi Challenger convertible, which you're like, when is he going to just give up on that? Well, I got me somewhere because in the process I ended up paying my truck off and buying one. Um, and maybe you've seen it out there, I don't know, but it, it's taught me a lot about even Second Corinthians as I've, as I've uh, uh, taken it into a uh, very personal experience. All that aside, for our purposes, what we've done is we've taken that car and we've imagined ourselves riding in this car, all of us, for whatever reason, it seems to have the capacity for everyone, primarily because of who's at the wheel, Jesus who has always had this open-arm approach to inviting people to the experience. And in this case, we've decided to imagine us in the car with him going through all of the different places in the land of 2 Corinthians and describing to us, really, some events that happened that really had a lot to do with the Apostle Paul and his relationship with people that he loved dearly. And... I can only imagine today, as we end our ride, sitting sort of at the top of a, of, a, of, a, of a cliff or a hillside and looking out over the city and imagining what is taking place in that city as Jesus has envisioned it representative of the churches that, are, that have now begun in that city of Corinth and hopefully the thriving church families that are part of the experience of celebrating their life together in Christ. But somewhere along the way, like so many families, I think Jesus would have to share with us as he's recounting for us the Apostle Paul's experience that's in, in Corinth and 2 Corinthians describing the good, the bad, and the ugly. As that's happening, Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, I want to spend the rest of eternity with you. And I want you to be a part of the family that we've created. And I want you to know that there will come a season where the scenery will get even better than what you're viewing now. But in the meantime, as a family, we got some work to do. And if you've ever been a part of a family, which I'm sure you have, you know that there are people that you love deeply, but there are also people that maybe you struggle in the battle of the wills with perhaps constantly or occasionally. And every family is like that. But how is it that we can be united as a family and do those things that represent to other people that the family of God is, by design, supposed to be the best family in the world? And as we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is just calling out the dysfunctionality of the family. And then he's bringing into sharper light what it is that makes a family work. Where is the power at of a family? And I was grateful when, I don't know if it's Chris or Lori who mentioned, um, 
the fact that family is such a big part of your world. And the cohesiveness that you have as a family is such a source of strength. And knowing you guys, I've seen that. And I've seen that through a series of seasons. And I recognize that that's something that I think we all long for, is to have our people. But as a pastor, I know that part of my job is to help play a role in fostering environments and relationships and even relating to others in a way that hopefully is in the best interest of all of us. And none of us being perfect sometimes breaks down. And how is it when it breaks down that we know it's breaking down? And how is it that we know that we're in a good place? Well, I don't know if that particular car was equipped with it, but I'm sure it has just it has some some aspect of dysfunction. And that is a self-diagnostic um, capability. You know what I mean by that? You ever have your washing machine say, not working, we're halfway through the cycle, but we need help over here, and you look at it and the load's out of balance? Now, I don't know if that applies to a toaster. Maybe you have a toaster that says, yeah, we're not able to cook the toast quite right because we got an issue. Or if you have a vehicle, how many of you have ever had a red light show up on your vehicle? And you got the impression that if I don't take this to an automotive mechanic and get what appears to be code 742, which I have no idea what that means, taken care of, or my car probably is going to self-destruct, so I've got to do something about it. And in your worry over that diagnostic, knowing that your machine isn't functioning the way it should, you go to the car dealer, and the car dealer says, yeah, we, we can take care of that for you, only three hours later to come back and say, you know, that's a stumper. I have no idea what that is. I know you got the light. I know you got the seal. We can't find anything. And then you're thinking, hmm. And you go back and the red light is on and you're thinking, they just said to ignore it. But every time you see that red light on the dash, you're like, I can't ignore it. But the idea pops into your head. How about a piece of black duct tape right over that spot on the dash? And then we're good. The mechanic says we're good, doesn't know what it is, it must just be a false diagnostic. And so whatever reality exists there, we can just ignore it. And sometimes, you know what? You're fine. And 100,000 miles later, that light's still on, but car's running good. But then you get another light that says, yeah, we have an issue with 649. And again, not being an engineer, not being a designer of the car, you have no idea what to do with that. So you go to a trained technician at an automotive place and they will gladly tell you what's wrong. And sure enough, they sort it out. And that self-diagnostic actually kept your car from exploding, from ejecting somebody out of the passenger seat uh, inadvertently. You know, I don't know what cars do other than to say that they either work or they don't. And the diagnostic is a way of saying your car is giving us, is signaling to us that if you don't get this fixed soon, you're going to be stuck on the roadside. And the dealer is there and the technician is there to help close the gap between what that light is saying and what that car needs in terms of attention. 
And along the way, they will gladly pick your pocket so that um, you can also reimburse them for their wisdom. Well, in that model, in that example, if you can just imagine the Apostle Paul being that technician, but also recognizing that as the source of the one who offers... There we go again. There we go. Sorry. You know what? I think I got a weird ear. But you know what? God makes all things beautiful in his own time, even my ear. Okay? So, if you can imagine that self-diagnostic being an aspect of being the church. I mean, think about it. If your family member has an issue, when they're little kids, they just act up. Because they don't feel safe sometimes, they don't know where the boundary is, so they act up and they want to see where you're going to draw the line so they can feel safe inside of it. But as we get older, we tend to get a little bit more complex in how we relate to one another. And sometimes it's for the best to hash things out. Other times, it means that the family's starting to kind of come apart a little bit. And it's really no different in the church. And while that's happening, there usually is, believe it or not, a little red light or two signaling to us that this needs some attention. And maybe you're here today because you've seen that signal and you know that this is really a God-sized problem. That you can't fix it on your own. And as Paul is looking at this church and he sees the dysfunctionality, and I would guess that if there were machines available in the time of the Apostle Paul, like, I don't know, washing machines or, or um, you know, talking toasters or whatever, he would say, he would use this language. He, I honestly believe this. He would say, you guys need to run a self-diagnostic. But if you don't know the things that help you to understand what that means, then maybe you need to, you need to follow my, my, my questions. And I had some questions that I wanted to put up there. They're the white slides that... Um, uh, that, that are on the, on the slide deck. So if you had a self-test, I would, I would wonder if, if we as individuals who are trying to gather together so that we can get along and hopefully move in a positive direction, if we ask these questions, when you look at yourself in the mirror, do you see someone in whom King Jesus is living and active? Or someone who maybe once knew him and now seems not to. Or maybe someone who really doesn't even know what that means. Because there's sort of a sweet spot where we are running well as believers and as people together in family that when Jesus is manifest in our lives in some way as we've included him every day and asked him every day to be a part of it, we kind of see ourselves taking on his characteristics. So another question in the self-test could be this. When you listen to the sort of things you're, you're, you say yourself, does it sound like the words that might come from King Jesus himself? Or are you simply talking the same way everyone else does? Now I'm not saying that you've got to have a bunch of holy religious vocabulary. It's really where your heart is at. Whether it's selfish and greedy, or perhaps willful, or maybe it is even coarse, perhaps it's 
It's not in a, in a healthy place, but a dangerous place. And you know, and as you're just sort of having that posture towards people around you, you know in your heart whether or not this is the kind of stuff that Jesus would bring into a conversation as you address a particular problem or issue. And so when you have something happen, and believe me, it's not like, you know, something just blindsides you and then all of a sudden, way back from the reservoirs of hearing your parents say a word or two, you might think, wow, that shouldn't have come out of your mouth. And sometimes, you know, we try to check that and say, yeah, I know it shouldn't have come out of my mouth. But other times we say things that don't necessarily build up one another that are a little bit more harmful. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's just language that undermines people rather than builds them up. Would Jesus say the things you're saying? The other diagnostic question would be something like this. Um, it would be when you find yourself with your brother or sister Christians, do you respond to them as brothers and sisters? As people in whom you you see the King Jesus also living, or are they just other people? Now, some of you may be saying right now, well, believe me, when I was a kid, my brother or my sister, we fought like cats and dogs. And I, I have an older sister, and we were oil and water all the time. And she babysat me, and she'd say, you need to go to your room, which I would do. And I'd conveniently crawl out of the window, and I'd be gone. <laughs> So, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how it is that you look at other people in a mature way and say, yeah. Because my sister actually is, you know, we fought whenever we were younger, but we have a deep love for each other, profound love for each other. And that's a diagnostic question. There's a whole lot of them, but I'll give you one more. And that is, when you settle down and quiet your mind and heart to pray and to wait for God, do you know and sense the presence, the life, and the love of King Jesus, close to you, within you, forming and sustaining and guarding and guiding and checking and directing you, pick any or all of the above. Because I do believe that there is a level of trust that we are moving into as we follow him that makes these things easier and easier to say, yes, I see that going on in my life. And if it's not going on in any of our lives, the goal is to help one another discover that. To be the more mature person, perhaps. Or when we fail, to own it. Bless you. And to say, Lord, we are all working towards health in our mind, body, and spirit through the salvation of Jesus. But we're also working towards well-being of the body. And if you were with us the last few weeks, you know that one of the little secrets of the well-being of the body that the Apostle Paul said was how weakness and dependence upon God in our struggle is a pathway to overcoming. And I just want to turn to uh, some of the scriptures that I want to draw us into as we close out our time here and uh, reflect on it just a little bit. So let's go ahead and, and begin with the scriptures that we have up there. And, um, and, and we'll start with uh, what Paul says. He said, um, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So Paul is just basically looking at this body of people 
and he's saying that there's still tensions and there's still misunderstanding happening and there's still conversations that need to clarify and as he's saying that and he knows there's conflict and there's things that are subtle in the air he calls him beloved like you would a family member but then he goes on to say this he said for I have for I fear that perhaps when I come you know a family reunion and I find that you uh, find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, meaning that whenever I walk into the room and you are there, it's going to be icy. That perhaps there may be, well, and this is part of the self-diagnostic test, quarreling, jealousy, and anger, and hostility, and slander, and gossip, and conceit, and disorder. Just taking a poll real quickly, it's informal, doesn't count for much. If you are in a family setting and you see that list, would you guess that maybe there's a problem? Or maybe you're like, hey, that's when we're at our best. You know, I don't know. I don't know where you're at. But one thing that I can say is, by Jesus' standard of how a family should thrive, he's basically saying whatever's causing those things, Maybe we need to long for a better day. And Paul was concerned that when he had his family reunion with people that he dearly loved in the Lord, that it was just going to be that. And it was going to be painful. And it would be almost like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm the Apostle Paul. I started that church. I will start another one and forget you guys. You know, it's kind of like the parents saying if the kid acts up, yeah, I brought you into the world, but I can take you out of the world as well. And Paul probably had that thought. But I'm guessing that he didn't stay there long because, because this was a family that he was in conflict with. But these were relationships that were worth fighting for. Not because he was just sentimental about the fact that, you know, they were all good-looking people and he wanted to hang out with them. It was because when we kind of get our house centered in the one place that it needs to be centered, people will look at this family and say, man, I'd like to be a part of a family like that. It's attractive. But we all have to kind of get our house in order. And as we're in the, in the, in the car with Jesus... And he's showing us the good, the bad, and the ugly of family life. And he's bringing to the surface the case study of the Apostle Paul. He's also thinking about you and I. And how you and I relate to one another. Well, let's go ahead and see what Paul wrote as he moved into chapter 13. Let's see some more scriptures. He says this. He said, test yourself or examine yourself. To see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. He's in you. Each of you. If you've invited him in. And if you haven't, that's also why we're here. So we can help you know him in that way. He says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So Paul is basically saying, 
we're running a diagnostic on you, I've been running a diagnostic on you, you've been running a diagnostic on me, which is another way of saying we've kind of been judging each other. And my goal is we can move past that. Now, have you ever been in a conflict with somebody and you were sort of like going toe-to-toe or you were in an argument or there was sort of like, yeah, this person's over here and I'm over here and I don't look forward to talking to them to resolve it? You ever had that? You ever been in that situation? And you're just hoping against hope that somehow you can walk away from it and maybe even feel good about the relationship? How do you do that? Because if you have a conflict, it means what? I have a strong-willed opinion about something. Someone else has a strong-willed opinion about something. And we're trying to work together on it. How do you find a resolution? A lot of times, if it's just us in the mix, you know, or one just says, I'm going to take control, and the other one says, you win. But that's not what Paul wants to see happen. He recognizes something that we need to be very carefully attuned to. And that is the only way this works is if Jesus is in the middle of it. Not off to the side, not some religious guy that we turn to when we're hurting, but he's in the middle of everything. And I've been blessed to know Christians and Christian families where clearly God has been seriously a part of their experience. And I see something there that brings me a lot of joy because I know that they've discovered that even though they have their struggles, at the end of the day, the Lord really is the head of the whole thing. And I also know that when I'm in a conflict, and believe me, I've been in conflicts, and I've been in conflicts where I'm like, I'm going to do a might makes right. And I've been in conflicts where I've been like, Lord, I just want your will to be done. And when I've been in the conflicts where might makes right with my wife, <laughs> I've, I've always lost. But when, in our case, we've said, let's back up a little bit. Where's Jesus at in this equation? And it's not been always easy. But I'll tell you something. Jesus isn't just a puppet. He is alive in that mix. He truly is. And we have to recognize that he's working his own purposes in that conflict. Now, have you ever had a conflict with someone? And you're like, we need a third party here to arbitrate. Why? Because you're like, I want to walk away from this and everybody's clear on what happened. And there's sort of a sense of security in knowing that there's a third party there to sort of referee. You with me? What if both people in a family setting said Jesus was a referee here? How disarming is that? And one of the cool things as a pastor that doesn't get talked about a lot, it's subtle, but it's real, is when those kind of resolutions begin to occur. Not because anyone in particular is making it happen. Other than, we've all agreed, 
that Jesus is going to be part of the conversation. And then it can be pretty amazing. And that's why Paul says, I'm concerned about the diagnostic, but here's where he goes with it. And this is what you need to take away from here. It's this. Go on, let's move on to the next slide. He said, but we pray to God that you may not be wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. And he's going on to talk about how the dynamic is just kind of played out in a, in a, in a, in a way where nobody really knows where it, it's going to land. And he said, for we cannot do anything against the truth, only for the truth. Now, if my car is breaking down and the red light is saying your car is breaking down and I'm saying, where's that duct tape at again? And I plaster it on that light and then 50 miles as believers and as people together in family, that when Jesus is manifest in our lives in some way, as we've included him every day and asked him every day to be a part of it, we kind of see ourselves taking on his characteristics. So another question in the self-test could be this. When you listen to the sort of things you're, you're, you say yourself, does it sound like the words that might come from King Jesus himself? Or are you simply talking the same way everyone else does? Now I'm not saying that you got to have a bunch of holy religious vocabulary. It's really where your heart is at. Whether it's selfish and greedy, or perhaps willful, or maybe it is even coarse, perhaps it's, it's not in a, in a healthy place, but a dangerous place. And you know, and as you're just sort of having that posture towards people around you, you know in your heart whether or not this is the kind of stuff that Jesus would bring into a conversation as you address a particular problem or issue. And so when you have something happen, and believe me, it's not like, you know, something just blindsides you and then all of a sudden, way back from the reservoirs of hearing your parents say a word or two, you might think, wow, that shouldn't have come out of your mouth. And sometimes, you know, we try to check that and say, yeah, I know it shouldn't come out of my mouth. But other times we say things that don't necessarily build up one another that are a little bit more harmful. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's just language that undermines people rather than builds them up. Would Jesus say the things you're saying? The other diagnostic question would be something like this. Um, it would be when you find yourself with your brother or sister Christians, do you respond to them as brothers and sisters? As people in whom you you see the King Jesus also living, or are they just other people? Now, some of you may be saying right now, well, believe me, when I was a kid, my brother or my sister, we fought like cats and dogs. And I, I have an older sister, and we were oil and water all the time. And she babysat me, and she'd say, you need to go to your room, which I would do. And I'd conveniently crawl out of the window, and I'd be gone. <laughs> So, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how it is that you look at other people in a mature way and say, yeah. Because my sister actually is, you know, we fought whenever we were younger, but we have a deep love for each other, profound love for each other. And that's a diagnostic question. There's a whole lot of them, but I'll give you one more. 
And that is, when you settle down and quiet your mind and heart to pray and to wait for God, you know and sense the presence, the life, and the love of King Jesus close to you, within you, forming and sustaining and guarding and guiding and checking and directing you, pick any or all of the above. Because I do believe that there is a level of trust that we are moving into as we follow him that makes these things easier and easier to say, yes, I see that going on in my life. And if it's not going on in any of our lives, the goal is to help one another discover that. To be the more mature person, perhaps. Or when we fail, to own it. Bless you. And to say, Lord, we are all working towards health in our mind, body, and spirit through the salvation of Jesus. But we're also working towards well-being of the body. And if you were with us the last few weeks, you know that one of the little secrets of the well-being of the body that the Apostle Paul said was how weakness and dependence upon God in our struggle is a pathway to overcoming. And I just want to turn to uh, some of the scriptures that I want to draw us into as we close out our time here. And uh, reflect on it just a little bit. So let's go ahead and, and begin with the scriptures that we have up there. And, um, and, and we'll start with uh, what Paul says. He said, um, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So Paul is just basically looking at this body of people. And he's saying that there's still tensions and there's still misunderstanding happening. And there's still conversations that need to clarify. And as he's saying that, and he knows there's conflict, and there's things that are subtle in the air, he calls them beloved, like you would a family member. But then he goes on to say this. He said, for I, have, for I fear that perhaps when I come, you know, a family reunion, and I find that you uh, find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, meaning that whenever I walk into the room and you are there, it's going to be icy. That perhaps there may be, well, and this is part of the self-diagnostic test, quarreling, jealousy, and anger, and hostility, and slander, and gossip, and conceit, and disorder. Just taking a poll real quickly, it's informal, doesn't count for much. If you are in a family setting and you see that list, would you guess that maybe there's a problem? Or maybe you're like, hey, that's when we're at our best. You know, I don't know. I don't know where you're at. But one thing that I can say is, by Jesus' standard of how a family should thrive, he's basically saying, whatever's causing those things, maybe we need to long for a better day. And Paul was concerned that when he had his family reunion with people that he dearly loved in the Lord, that it was just going to be that. And it was going to be painful. And it would be almost like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm the Apostle Paul. I started that church. I will start another one and forget you guys. You know, it's kind of like the parents saying if the kid acts up, yeah, I brought you into the world, but I can take you out of the world as well. 
And Paul probably had that thought. But I'm guessing that he didn't stay there long because, because, this was a family that he was in conflict with. But these were relationships that were worth fighting for. Not because he was just sentimental about the fact that you know they were all good looking people and he wanted to hang out with them. It was because when we kind of get our house centered in the one place that it needs to be centered, people will look at this family and say, man, I'd like to be a part of a family like that. It's attractive. But we all have to kind of get our house in order. And as we're in the, in the, in the car with Jesus, and he's showing us the good, the bad, and the ugly of family life, and he's bringing to the surface the case study of the Apostle Paul, he's also thinking about you and I and how you and I relate to one another. But let's go ahead and see what Paul wrote as he moved into chapter 13. Let's see some more scriptures. He says this. He said, test yourself or examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? He's in you. Each of you. If you've invited him in. And if you haven't, that's also why we're here, so we can help you know him in that way. He says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So Paul is basically saying... We're running a diagnostic on you. I've been running a diagnostic on you. You've been running a diagnostic on me, which is another way of saying we've kind of been judging each other. And my goal is we can move past that. Now, have you ever been in a conflict with somebody and you were sort of like going toe-to-toe or you were in an argument or there was sort of like, yeah, this person's over here and I'm over here. And I don't look forward to talking to them to resolve it. You ever had that? You ever been in that situation? And you're just hoping against hope that somehow you can walk away from it and maybe even feel good about the relationship? How do you do that? Because if you have a conflict, it means what? I have a strong-willed opinion about something. Someone else has a strong-willed opinion about something. And we're trying to work together on it. How do you find a resolution? A lot of times, if it's just us in the mix, you know, or one just says, I'm going to take control, and the other one says, you win. But that's not what Paul wants to see happen. He recognizes something that we need to be very carefully attuned to. And that is the only way this works is if Jesus is in the middle of it. Not off to the side, not some religious guy that we turn to when we're hurting, but he's in the middle of everything. And I've been blessed to know Christians and Christian families where clearly God has been seriously a part of their experience. And I see something there that brings me a lot of joy because I know that they've discovered that even though they have their struggles, at the end of the day, 
The Lord really is the head of the whole thing. And I also know that when I'm in a conflict, and believe me, I've been in conflicts, and I've been in conflicts where I'm like, I'm going to do a might makes right. And I've been in conflicts where I've been like, Lord, I just want your will to be done. And when I've been in the conflicts where might makes right with my wife, well, I've always lost. But when, in our case, we've said, let's back up a little bit. Where's Jesus at in this equation? And it's not been always easy. But I'll tell you something. Jesus isn't just a puppet. He is alive in that mix. He truly is. And we have to recognize that he's working his own purposes in that conflict. Now, have you ever had a conflict with someone? And you're like, we need a third party here to arbitrate. Why? Because you're like, I want to walk away from this and everybody's clear on what happened. And there's sort of a sense of security in knowing that there's a third party there to sort of referee. You with me? What if both people in a family setting said Jesus was a referee here? How disarming is that? And one of the cool things as a pastor that doesn't get talked about a lot, it's subtle, but it's real, is when those kind of resolutions begin to occur. Not because anyone in particular is making it happen. Other than we've all agreed that Jesus is going to be part of the conversation. And then it can be pretty amazing. And that's why Paul says... I'm concerned about the diagnostic, but here's where he goes with it. And this is what you need to take away from here. It's this. Go on, let's move on to the next slide. He said, but we pray to God that you may not be wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. And he's going on to talk about how the dynamic is just kind of played out in a, in a, in a, in a way where nobody really knows where it, it's going to land. And he said, for we cannot do anything against the truth only for the truth. Now, if my car is breaking down and the red light is saying your car is breaking down and I'm saying, where's that duct tape at again? And I plaster it on that light and then 50 miles down the road I'm sticking my thumb out asking for a ride because for some strange reason my car said this is where we part ways. Because you forgot to put oil in it. Or it overheated. And you're like, yeah, I tried to deny the reality of what was going on by ignoring it, but reality has a way of coming back and getting you. Now, you and I, when we come into this room, you always hear me say, God loves us where we're at, but he loves us too much to keep us there. Because embedded in each of our lives are things about us that he has to deal with. It's sins, it's willfulness, it's... And I'm not just talking about, you know, the big habits. I'm talking about little things that he turns to the surface. And we feel uncomfortable because, well, it's the truth. And 
If you were to ask me, Leonard, what are your character flaws? You know, I, I may or may not know. I may or may not be aware. And even if I am aware, I may just say, don't see that one. Got a nice piece of tape plastered on it. And God says, we'll work on it under these conditions. And the truth has a way over time of kind of revealing where we're at, where we lack. And even families, if they're going to grow, we all kind of have to go through sort of a, a personal inventory because maybe what we're doing right now is bringing toxicity or cancer to the relationship because we're not being honest about the effect that it's having on other people. Or maybe we're like, I know that's there. I know that's been getting in the way. And I know I need to own that. And that's just the truth saying, I'm the truth and you can't change the truth. You can't change what it is. You can't make it go away. You can't project onto it your own meaning. It is here and it will always be here. And Paul is saying that's really what we're about. We're about the truth. Have you ever heard of the statement, family secrets? You know, people got little secrets that they keep and they don't tell and one sort of... I mean, I was a victim of a family secret just a couple of weeks ago. A big family secret that went on and on and included a whole lot of my people that I considered family and church family. And, well, at the end of the day, it was a good secret. But I'm talking about the kind where we just want that to go away. Now, I'm not saying to drudge up everything, but I am just saying that God may be plant placing the truth in front of you. He may be saying, we need to deal with this because we have to be stronger together. So along the way, we kind of start to own things that get in the way. Let's go back to the challenger for a minute because I know you're not going to hear much of, about it after now. But I, I did buy one, and, well, my wife helped me buy one. I paid my truck off, but she helped me buy it because I needed some money for a down payment, and she said, we're co-owners now. So when I say my car, I mean our car. Okay, you got that? All right, and it's just a car, by the way. It's just a car. It's just a vehicle that gets you from point A to point B. Only it's a heck of a lot of fun to drive from point A to point B. So much so that my family is like, you like this car more than you like us. Well, that's not true, guys. Honestly, it's not. Matter of fact, I even let my wife drive the car. Okay. Sean said, Leonard lets you drive his car and it's a stick. And Mandy's like, I got that down. And she probably said this. I can just I can just hear it echoing all the way out to um, Lisbon Canto Road. Yeah, but I won't drive the car when he's in the car. Because I hate riding in the car with him. Because he makes me nervous. And he's always judging what I do. And he's always making comments about how I drive the car. And he's always like he's in the driver's ed car looking for the brake pedal. And it gets worse. She will say, I never hear Mandy say I hate anything. But she will say, I hate driving in the car with Leonard. There it is. I'm that guy. I own it. And so I'm like, well, I guess that's that. Until I, you know, I want... You know, because the car, honestly, trust me, it isn't about the car. It is about what we enjoy together as a family with the car. So I'm thinking, wouldn't it be great if, if you know, my kids begin to learn and Christian was the first in line? And so, you know, 
Never, he's never driven a stick. Anybody ever drive a stick before? A lot of you guys are veterans. Some of you aren't. It's not easy, trust me. Everybody's got a funny learn how to drive a stick story, right? And you can write those down or post them on Facebook or whatever. Maybe we should start a thread. So Christian is no exception. I take him out here, and I'm not going to embarrass him other than to say he goes through the usual motions of starting and stopping. And I'm watching this thinking, but he's got to learn and this is the road to get there and he's starting and stopping and I'm like but he gets it and then we go for a drive and he still has some frustrations and I honestly think the problem isn't entirely Christians because we are also socially influenced creatures and next to Christian who's in the driver's seat is well his dad and when his dad is riding with him, his behavior doesn't change a bit from his dad's wife when she's driving. But I'm over there, I'm as tense as I can possibly be. I'm so tense I can break. And you know, he's driving and I'm just like... And I, I, and I know if there is such a thing as people giving off a vibe, it's making him nervous and second-guessing himself. And I'm looking at this experience and I'm saying, I should be the one in control. I should be the one driving. Even though he's driving or she's driving or whoever. But that's sort of the problem in the whole thing. Because when you look at this car, the way we've been playing it, who's been behind the wheel? Jesus. And if you go through life constantly saying, Jesus, you're making me nervous. Or Lord, what are you doing? Or I know you're the Lord, but man, I'm not sure what you think you're doing here. You ever had that? Where you kind of second guess what the Lord is up to? Like where he's going? You know, like I know we're along for the ride with you and we got to do our part because we're in this together. Man, this is a tough one. And that's essentially what the church was saying. We like Jesus and stuff. But in a lot of ways, we just kind of keep him at arm's length. But the thing is, if you're going to be family with him forever, he's going to invade your space a little bit. And he's going to make you a little uptight. And sometimes he's just going to make you mad. Because you ever, you ever showcase in some weird way someone else's fault. Like maybe you're good at something and they're struggling with it and they want to they become like that and they see you do it and they're like, yeah, this just shows how much of a loser I am in that. I've been on both the receiving end and the giving end of that. There's something about other people maybe doing better or doing worse that we kind of measure ourselves. And when it comes out that we don't have what it takes, we get upset. And all God is saying is, that's pretty normal. <laughs> Because the standard is pretty high. It's Jesus. Who is the perfect example of somebody who became one of us and had a vision of obedience to the Father and just kept it dialed in the whole time. And now Paul is telling the church that very Jesus is not only with you as a church, if you, if you, if you will trust the truth of this, he is inside of each of you. 
He could write in other places, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. He can write in other places a variety of things that talk about how his presence in your life or mine is a game changer. And a lot of times, we don't want to hear what he has to say. But he says it not just for us, not just to make us feel guilty and it's like, oh, you know what, I feel like such a worm now. He's got a bigger vision than just you. He's thinking about how it all works together. And whether or not you're helping it all work together or you're working against it. And he's primarily not fixated on just grinding you into the ground for not meeting the standard. He's mostly just trying to cultivate like a good leader in a family does the well-being of the people so that when they work together, they're working together. And good and cool things happen when people work together. It's a force multiplier. My, my kids and I will do something together and it's like we accomplished in a short amount of time what would have taken me five times as long. And it's no different for the church. But let me just land the plane. As we go through these verses and we're coming to the end, the Apostle Paul says these words. Let's go ahead and show the rest of the scriptures. He says this, For we are glad when we are weak and you're strong. Again. No, it doesn't work. Your restoration is what we pray for. The ability for all of us to be restored. That there would be a family reunion where people have said, I'm glad to be here. And then he goes on to say this. For this reason I write these things, that while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that a parent would for their kid. Rather, I can build you up. Moving on, he says this. Finally, brothers, rejoice. And he means brothers and sisters. Aim for, this is how you know if the diagnostic is working. Restoration, reconciliation, Comforting, getting out of your head and out of yourself and being aware of what's going on in other people's lives and saying, oh, you know what, they, they need, they look like they need something and I, maybe God can use me. Agreeing with one another in Christ, living in peace, the peace that passes all understanding, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And then read one another the holy kiss. Now we don't do the holy kiss thing like they did, holy handshake. Uh, appropriate hug, whatever, but it's a way of taking what are ideas and conversation and embodying them in a meaningful way. And then he says uh, these words, all the saints greet you. If there was ever any glue, and if you have your Bibles, you can just write this on the side, that makes the car ride work, that makes the church work, because at the end of the day, it's not about the building. It's not about the car. And Christian, I know I've made you nervous. I apologize for that. At the end of the day, you guys can mark my word, it's just a car. Every part on that car can be replaced. The car is really just a, a means to an end. We were going to go to Blossom a while back. Everybody else is busy, so Christian and myself and Mandy got in the car. We drove up to Pagoda, 
We just got in the car, we were driving around, and we were listening to 80s tunes um, that we were, we were getting on our phone. And then we were singing, embarrassingly singing, like loudly, like if anybody saw this, we would be run out of town. It was, we, it was disarming, but it was joyful. And we got to near Blossom, and somebody said, let's just keep driving, this is so fun. So we didn't go. We just kept driving, drove back down to Canton, and drove way back in the boonies in Ohio. And we got home about 11 o'clock. And our pipes were pretty fried. And we were full of joy. Because we were having a moment. It's not really about the car, but the car does add to the experience. It's not really about the building, but the building and what happens adds to the experience. And at the end of the day, when we're singing, I hope that that same kind of joy that you have in a car ride is the same kind of joy that we have here. At the end of the day, even though we're in a Hemi Challenger with Jesus, it could be a Yugo. It doesn't matter. As long as Jesus is in the car, there is no describing how good it is. And it's good for these three reasons. The grace of the Lord Jesus that is at work in your life and mine that says, I can come to the Father and not only that, be invited and accepted into his family forever, only through what Jesus accomplished on the bloodstained cross and made possible based on the great love that God has for you. Because at the end of the day, God's character, if you'd summarize it in one word, is deep and profound love for his creation and especially for each of you. And the thing that he said would make the church family work, he gave us on day one when the family started. Acts 2, Acts 1 and 2, the day of Pentecost. People gather, they celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes and says, I am the Spirit of Jesus, and I'm the essential ingredient for this to work, both individually and as a group. And we all have to surrender to those realities, and the more we do, the more we can be a family together that shines. The more that we do that in our families, the more we shine. And the more we do that in our own personal lives, the more we shine.